You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Our job is to remember that there's nothing on this planet that isn't worth contemplating. There is no topic, no topic that's more exciting. I'm sorry, there just isn't. My curiosity allows me, even on particularly difficult days, to just enjoy how things function and and be amazed. And I think that keeps me curious about being alive. So curiosity can be quite a treacherous journey. And what I'm interested in particularly is what are the moments when one might retreat again from discovery. And so when it came time to writing this curiosity paper, I thought, how would we do it? How would we take something that we barely understood in a normative sense and study it for all of those other kids who don't generally have a voice and don't generally get studied? I think what took me to curiosity is the observation that there's a problem in defining the sorts of ways in which we search for knowledge Mm -hmm. and that perhaps the understanding of curiosity could be benefited by a scientific and mathematical approach. You know, when you're curious about something, you're sort of pulled off in multiple directions. Curiosity is such a delightfully big topic. I don't have much reason to have the same people back. But this time is different, for an exciting reason. When I first interviewed Perry Zern, an American University professor of philosophy and connoisseur of curiosity, I'd been following his work with interest and looking for ways to connect. In preparing for that conversation on the very political nature of curiosity, I learned that along with anthropology professor Arjun Shankar, he was co-editing an anthology on curiosity called Curiosity Studies, A New Ecology of Knowledge. It looked to be shaping up like the scholarly version of my show. I couldn't wait to get my hands on this book and told Perry so as we were packing up after our interview. Honey, you should mention that, he said, pulling a sheaf of paper from his bag and handing me the book's table of contents and contributors' bios. We've been thinking we'd like to do a podcast to accompany the book, and we'd like you to do it. Yes, I said, and I have questions. And so a partnership was formed. And I'll let Perry describe more about the book and the vision and the why and the what, but I'll preface that with this. Before there was a radio show, there was a period of self-directed study shaped only by my own curiosity. It was haphazard, serendipitous, admittedly lopsided, and both bounded and extended by my own evolving idea of what it was I was pursuing, which is to say not much has changed. But as you've heard from so many of my guests over the years, we get better at curiosity, poking our nose into the new and surprising places, 
with almost always useful and, dare I say, pleasing results. And the prospect of bringing a vigorous, rigorous, and diverse group of scholars to this study is more exciting than I can say. And I've been tickled to come along for the ride. So thank you, Perry, and welcome. Thanks. I'm excited to be here again. Okay. How did Curiosity Studies come to be? Where did this idea come from? It really began when I was uh, appointed uh, as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Curiosity, which was a short-term initiative originated by the director of the Center for Curiosity, Kushal Sachetti. He's a fascinating guy, and he relates this story that really inspired the Center for Curiosity to begin with. He says he remembers a time when he was a young boy in India, and he suddenly saw a girl about his age reading Mm. an English book. And he says, at this moment, the impossible suddenly became possible, just before his eyes. It cracked open the world, and he said he's been on a journey of curiosity ever since, which he describes as this wondering what other impossible things are in fact possible. Oh, I love from its inception, this connection of curiosity and making the impossible possible, or conceivable anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And his dream is that is that we understand precisely what curiosity is. So, in how many ways does it do this? Does right. it make things more possible? So to understand it and then to popularize it, so that more people think about it, more people practice it. Much like I think the mission of of your podcast, really. So. That was our mission. Uh-huh. It's a good was, mission. Uh, right. So I joined the team, specifically Arjun Shankar, who was another postdoc, and we sit down and we say, how should we use this year? Right? Yeah. How are we going to achieve that giant vision? And he said, well, we have to do everything. I mean, we have to do talks. We have to do public outreach. We have to do collaborations and apply for grants and do publications. And I said, I really want to do a book. Uh-huh. And we looked at each other and we said, we're going to call it Curiosity Studies. We want to carve out a, a place for the study of curiosity that is recognizable in a really robust sense. Because right now it's quite fractured. I know that from my own experience. There are lots of people working in this space, but they don't necessarily know the other people who are except within their maybe narrow discipline. They don't really know the other people who are working in this space, right? So you're looking to bring all those different disparate parts together, yeah? Right, which is exciting <laughs> and also sometimes uncomfortable for, for yeah. some people. So you're right that I think the curiosity studies is new. We're, mm-hmm. we're claiming it. <laughs> but uh-huh. the study of curiosity is quite old, but it's been really siloed. It's been really isolated. Yeah. So that you have the historians or the literary critics or the psychologists or the neuroscientists just talking to their own people rather than across fields. So... You have this subtitle that also to me is really interesting. There's this curiosity studies where you're kind of planting a flag and you're saying we're establishing this new area of study. But then it's an ecology of knowledge. Unpack that because I think that's richer than a passing glance might suggest. Yeah. Well, in order to really unpack that, we need to take a step back about 50 years uh, to the (laughs) early 1970s. We need to think about what was happening in the ecology movement at the time. Mm. So there was a growing concern about factory farming and cash crop initiatives that developed monocultures of the land, which means that one plant was planted and grown in a large, you know, set of acreage and then sold. And everything else was killed or 
kept off the land through synthetic fertilizers, synthetic pesticides, et cetera, et cetera. And this, over time, weakens the soil because it's one, one plant continually taking the same things from the soil. Weakens the soil, and it also increases soil erosion so that the soil becomes kind of dusty and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, loose. And people at the times, ecologists at the time said, we need polycultures. Mm-hmm. So poly means many, right? We need to cultivate in our agriculture many things on the land at right. once. I'm seeing it coming. Right. <laughs> so, that, so that whatever one plant takes from the soil, another plant brings back. Other plants are natural kind of deterrents to certain pests, and others are natural harbor, harborers of beneficial insects. And these plants are allowed to live with one another for a long period of time, perennially, over and over and over again, such that kind of the, the fungal network underground can mm-hmm. also really enrich the soil continually and strengthen it. So that was the movement. So this is what ecologists are talking about. And at the time, social scientists are saying, you know, that's what we need. There's our metaphor. <laughs> that is also what we need uh, when yeah. we're thinking in, in ecologies of the mind, really, mm-hmm. or ecologies of knowledge. We need to not continually become more and more siloed or more yeah. specialized such that the soil of our thought is weakened over time. And then that's about... Not just thought, right? I mean, you use you don't use new ecology of thought. It's a new ecology of knowledge. What's the difference there? Is there a difference? Yes. I think that part of the impetus behind curiosity studies is an insistence that curiosity studies must be interdisciplinary. Uh-huh. And that's for any number of reasons. I think that creativity only comes when we bring unexpected things together. Mm-hmm. So for curiosity studies to be a creative field... It needs to be talking across boundaries, Mm -hmm. but also for curiosity studies to be curious. Mm. It needs to not just be interdisciplinary, but in a sense, be antidisciplinary to say, why? Mm. Why have we separated Mm -hmm. these things? Why do we see them as separate enterprises, as not having anything meaningful to say to one another? And so when I say, when we say ecologies of knowledge, we're talking about healthy ecologies of knowledge that bring together multiple producers of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we see that as both across disciplines, but also between the academy and outside the academy. So that's why I'm really excited about this particular collaboration between us, because I think that book is important, but a, sh- a radio show is important, <laughs> and all kinds of audiences together, coming together to talk and to understand mm-hmm. curiosity, that's that's what's going to make, that's what's going to surprise us. And I think that's what's going to enrich the insights that we have. So talk a moment about some of the other things that you're kind of building around this book, because Choose to be Curious is but a piece of a larger architecture. Describe some of what's coming into being here. Well, the book itself will be printed, mm-hmm. as m- many books A real are. book. <laughs> real book. You can hold it if you want to. <laughs> you can smell it. Right, right, right. Um, but it, at the same time, it will be released in an open access version online mm-hmm. in a di- on a digitally interactive format called Manifold by the University of Minnesota Press. We feel lucky and excited that it ha- it will have that kind of reach immediately. Yeah. And I think it shows that we... It shows a commitment, a commitment that we have, not only to uh, sort of a polyculture of disciplines, as I've described, but a polyculture of media. So a multiple mediums through which one can interact with 
curiosity, depending on where you're coming from or what you feel, what you've had for breakfast that night. <laughs> <laughs> that, by the way, folks, is a reference to what I made Perry answer as we're checking our sounds before we get started. <laughs> He's connecting the dots in our earlier conversation. Yep. So, so one of the things that you talk about in the, maybe it's in the introduction or in the coda in the end, about sort of, you know, where do you go from this is that curiosity is multiple. You've kind of spoken to that a little bit here. Curiosity is praxeological and is political. I want to spend some time in the middle there mm. in this sort of it's something that we actually do. What is that? What does that mean? What does that actually look like? Either from the book or just, you know, kind of from your own thinking at this point? Yeah. So sometimes people imagine that curiosity is uh, simply something we carry, a feeling that we carry, mm -hmm. and that we either feel it or we don't feel it. But it turns out that curiosity drives us to do things. It is, it is a propulsion. And we can see it in our behaviors. We can see it in our architectures. We can mm -hmm. see it in our land, right, or in our agricultural practices. So there's, there's a way in which it structures the very geometry of our lives and our world. So have things surprised you from this? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like what? And we, and we knew, we knew that, uh, we knew it particularly that unexpected connections would come out of uh -huh. inviting the, you know, vast array of authors that we have uh, collected in this book. I mean, we really span so, so many of the disciplines. One of the things we, <laughs> I was, I was interested to notice how many people from different fields talked about a concern with um, does curiosity, curiosity clear, clearly draws us to what is different, to what is new, what is strange. Mm -hmm. And so many people were th are also thinking about does it help us interact with people who are different from us mm -hmm. or does it hinder us from mm -hmm. interacting with mm -hmm. people who are different from us? And there's a lot of people talking in a trying to understand human differences of gender or sex or disability or geography or culture. but And they're all trying to kind of unpack this. Does curiosity help us? Does it not? When and why? And But they're also not really talking to each other until you collect them in this book and you yeah. say, wow, you know? So have you, gotten all the, have you gotten all the authors in a room together? We got most of them in a room uh -huh. together for a conference to kick off the project right, so that right. they could really start hearing and thinking about each other's um, projects. And then we had them also kind of uh, weigh in on each other's chapters as they were oh, uh, oh, developing. Yes, yeah, so oh, there's a more intimate kind of internal citations happening. and It's pretty exciting. Uh, uh, I didn't pick up on that. Interesting. One of the things that you said as we were kind of preparing for this conversation is that you also wanted to talk about the limitations of the book. Not everybody always wants to go there. Oh, yeah. But I like that because to me that that's living curiosity studies, right? Mm -hmm. It's being curious about, well, where are the limitations? Where have we missed a mark? Where might we go? So what have you seen? What have you found? Yeah, I think that with any book project, you you want to be really glad that you did it. And you also want to grow beyond it, uh -huh. right? And I already see that happening with curiosity studies. I think for Arjun and I, for both of us, we see a, a necessity of attending more closely to communities, community understandings of curiosity. So the mm. book is an academic book. Yeah, unapologetically um, so. Right, right. But I think that there is more, there's much more that we could do that would be 
kind of a in in partnership with com, with various communities to explore how curiosity works and is understood in different ways. So I think that a more community oriented book would be a nice. Uh, I I almost wish that we had done that. I appreciate the thing that we did, <laughs> um, but I think uh, for the next kind of iteration of this, that would be good. Um, we but also, that seems that's like developmental, right? I don't know that you could have conceptualized that successfully before going through this process, do you? No, that's quite possible. Yeah. 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 And the more I think, again, the more we think about these this ecology of knowledge and like how many kind of living organisms of curiosity can we bring into the field mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to think about it. We've also uh, talked a lot about how focused it is on Western culture mm. and, and Western yeah. knowledge and how much we really need a sequel <laughs> on, on global curiosities. Yeah. I also think, though, that we don't have to go beyond, we don't have to go outside the United States in order to get that kind of challenge to a Western approach to curiosity. So I've thought much about exploring what are the resources in indigenous thought and history Mm. to to unpack what curiosity is and Mm -hmm. how we ought to practice it. So those are just some limitations, which are also just paths forward, right? Right. Where Where do we go from here? Right, right. That's really cool. So... This is all about the doing. What do you do differently as a result of this book in Curiosity? Yeah. Well, I might stick actually with this uh, point about indigenous curiosity. I've it struck me as soon as we were done the project that it was a that it was a hole in in the project, uh, a lack of attention, and I wanted to attend to that. So one of my practices has been precisely to be on a new path of exploration and investigation and research to track down what are what are the what are the resources and is in indigenous thought for understanding or thinking about curiosity. And I think what's fascinating is that, for instance, much indigenous um, kind of knowledge practice is community based. Uh First of all, Um, it's often built on storytelling. So multiple mediums. It's also, it emphasizes um, polycultures of land and polycultures of knowledge. It's interesting. Yeah. And also there's an emphasis on practicing curiosity with another person, with the earth, instead of against another person or against the earth. So there's a Menominee story um, that I tracked down where an indigenous man is uh, finds himself just enthralled with the sound of toads and, and um, frogs. Oh, um, and he he just he just can't get enough, and so he 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 listens for them. He waits for them every spring. He gets so attached to them. He just thinks this is so beautiful. He ends up one night sleeping outside just to be you know, I mean, sleeping right by the the pond where the where the toads are, and this he just wants to understand and and appreciate and learn. But the next morning, he wakes up, and the frogs speak to him, and they, which they've never spoken to him before. And they say, we are crying. We are not. Oh, he hears singing. them, but he doesn't, he doesn't know what they're saying. Right. He yeah. says, this is out of pain. And oh, he says, we're wow. crying over the pain of the frogs and the toads that we've lost in the past. Wow. And you didn't ask to be a part of this morning. Um, it's a heavy oh, story. wow. But I think about 
this strikes me as a demand that there be mm-hmm. curiosity with, yeah, right? Not about, but curiosity with. Yeah, yeah. When I appreciate the external world, when I hike, when I see just a gorgeous landscape, am I simply appreciating it for what it does for me instead of hearing what might be, um, what might be the sounds of pain of an earth under assault? Right. Yeah. I mean, what and or with other human beings when I, when when there are social studies. Um, investigations or research projects? Are you just listening to the thing you want to hear because you're interested in it? Or are you hearing the community and the things that they are going through? Right? I think that, to me, that's just a powerful reconfiguration of what curiosity ought to be. So that's actually really interesting because, you know, a lot of doing a radio show is about listening. It's not about talking. It's, mm-hmm. I do a lot of research, do a lot of other things. Yeah. But a lot of it is about listening and I think I listen when we're in the middle of the conversation. I feel like I'm listening. But when I go home and I listen to these conversations again, I always hear things I missed the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think about that. You know, we don't usually have the opportunity to revisit all of our conversations. So it feels like an incredible privilege that I get mm. to do. I have these rich conversations, and then I get to revisit them. Yeah. And I discover things I missed Things that I obviously didn't miss, but didn't fully, you know, realize um, in the moment. And I think about that in this context, about even when we're really listening well, without, and this is, I think, a curiosity practice that has come for me, in part through these conversations, because I'm talking to all these damn smart, you know, scholars, like I really have to be on my game. Mm-hmm. That um, to to reflect on conversations, not just our conversations with the people we think of as smart, but any conversation, yeah. is to me a curiosity practice. It's like, what else was in that conversation? What might I have missed? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that, for me, is different as a result yeah. of this. The practice yeah. of, of true openness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So where do we go from here? Yeah, well, I think that we go kind of headfirst into this new field yeah. called curiosity studies, and I think we okay first follower. I'm going to be your first follower. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yes, new field. I think through new media, just a pluralization and a democratization of ways of understanding curiosity. I think through building new networks uh, and interconnections with people and with fields. Um, but as we're pressing into that future, um, I want us to. Remember that we're, in a sense, at least for me, we're returning to something quite old and quite wise, Mm. which is this indigenous approach uh, to curiosity. And that, to me, that should be that pressing toward the future and also kind of carrying a history. It should be humbling um, and it should be really exciting. And I just I can't wait to to see what else I don't know about curiosity. got a whole series of interviews with the contributing authors from Curiosity Studies. In addition to fascinating conversations with smart academics, I've been mucking about in the woods with second graders, hanging out with poets and musicians, chatting with people who were walking this talk, activating the concepts described by the authors, people whose lives and days are filled with what it means, as Perry and Arjun put it, to conscientiously deploy radical curiosity every day. I hope you'll listen in. Links to the entire series and the University of Minnesota Press Manifold site Perry mentioned 
all available on my website. Check them out. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can catch all my previous shows on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on Twitter at Choose and number two, letter B, Curious. Special thanks to my guest, Perry Zern, for this conversation and for the year of conversations that it's brought us to this point. Thanks, too, to the contributing authors who made a cameo appearance today. John L. Jackson, Jr., Barbara M. Benedict, Sita Sistla, Narendra Keval, Christy Johnson, Danny Bassett, Tyson Lewis, Arjun Shankar, Susan Engel, Christina Leon, and Amy Marvin. I think the future of curiosity is in very good hands. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and this is Town Market by Cloud Harbor from Blue Dot Sessions, a nod to the robust exchange of ideas that comes with curiosity. I hope you'll join us again next time, and until then, choose to be curious. For me, the first question is, what kinds of knowledge are valued and what kinds of knowledge are not valued? We value knowing things, not the process of not knowing something and wanting to get the answer. And those are a world apart, those two perspectives. I often tell my students, I'm not sure you'll leave this class with more answers, but if you have more refined more sophisticated questions, then I think we'll have had a huge success. The backstory is you're a big baker. (laughs) I typically have my guests do an analogy, words we pull out of a jar, random words. But I'm wondering if you see any kind of an analogy between baking bread and your thinking about curiosity in this context? Yeah, yeah. Because I really like working with sourdough. And an interesting thing about working with sourdough, but also with any kind of um, yeast, is that you're, you're working with something that's alive. So yeast is a living thing. Sourdough is a living thing that you're sort of working with in order to produce these beautiful breads that you then consume. So I'm someone who who definitely approaches baking with curiosity. I'm sort of pulled towards these recipes. I'm pulled towards these different ways of trying to make a beautiful bread or sometimes a not-so-beautiful bread. But I'm also working with this living culture. And I think I found for myself it's really important to have a respect for this living thing, to learn mm. more about it, you know, to keep the sourdough culture alive, even as I'm sort of also using it to to feed myself with this beautiful bread that I, I like to make for myself and others. So I think there's an interesting relationship with curiosity, with trying different things and experimenting with breads, but also with trying to respect the whole process and the living things that I'm working with. Funding for Choose to be Curious is provided in part by Concentric Private Wealth, where changemakers develop clarity for today and confidence for tomorrow by centering on what matters most, which involves more than just money. 
More information at www.concentricpw.com. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.